0: See. Friends, welcome to our UF. Uh, if you've been with us, we are working our way through a series in the Book of Exodus. Uh, we're calling it "Storied: um, The Gospel According to Exodus." And tonight, we're going to look at Exodus uh, portions of chapter three and portions of chapter four. Uh, you, you have it printed in your handout if you want to follow along, or if you want to open, if you brought a Bible or have an app, you can open, follow along there. So Exodus three, and we read verses one to seventeen, and then Exodus four, I'm going to read verses ten to seventeen. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, "Here I am." And then he said, "Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground." And he said, "I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Oz- the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob." And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, "I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And to the, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the, Egyptian, the Egyptians <laughs> oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to unpack this tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who loves to reveal yourself. We thank you that you revealed yourself to Moses. Lord, we are here because you revealed yourself to Moses and worked redemption, starting bringing your people out of Egypt and eventually bringing your promised, the true and better Moses, Jesus, to us Gentiles, that we might belong to your great family. And Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us by your word and by your spirit, that we can know you, that you love to draw near to us, that we might know you as you truly are, the one and true living God. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as we wrestle with this text, as we look at it, as we study it, would you meet us in this place? Would you reveal yourself to us in all of your glory and all of your holiness and all of your power and all of your grace? We pray these things through uh, through, through the Lord Christ. In his name, amen. So the way that we've been approaching this series is we've said Exodus, why we're doing Exodus is Exodus is basically the story of salvation in a nutshell. And we've talked about, if you hear that first week, it's got four movements, slavery, rescue, wilderness, and the promised land. And if you belong to Jesus, that is your story. Jesus rescued you from your slavery to sin. He is journeying with you in the wilderness that can be life in a fallen world uh, as a fallen sinner. And he has promised to take you. Jesus has said to us, he's gone forth in the new heavens and the new earth. He's already at the right hand of God and he's preparing a place for us. But the heart of that story, the heart of our story, if you belong to God, is meeting him. And that's what we're looking at tonight. What is it like to meet the living God? And there are four things, I think, this text that are really fascinating that that tell us, how do you know when you've genuinely met God, when you've had a genuine encounter with God, that you know God? There are four things in this text I want you to see that meeting God involves. First... Meeting God involves tension that leads to reflection. Second, meeting God feels like meeting fire or approaching fire. Third, meeting God exposes. It brings out our weakness and insecurity. And the last thing we're going to see is meeting God always ends in mission. Let me go ahead and say that I'm borrowing uh, Les Newsom, My friend Les Newsom helped me tremendously with this sermon, so I've got to give credit to him. But first, think with me for a second about meeting God involves tension that leads to reflection. What I want you to see is the, this text begins with a strange sight. If you remember last week, Moses has spent quite a few years in Midian. He's become a shepherd. God has reasons, part of which are humbling Moses to become the man who can lead through God's power and purposes and promises the Israelites out of Egypt. But in the meantime, Moses is hes a shepherd. He's shepherding the flock, and he sees this strange sight, right? The strange sight is what? You saw in the text. The strange sight is this bush that's on fire, and yet it's not burning up. It's just sort of perpetually Fire is there, and yet the bush remains intact. The bush remains un, unburnt, essentially. And it's such a strange sight that Moses goes over to examine it. It, it, do, it so doesn't fit Moses' experience of reality that he has to go check it out. And what we're saying is part of God's way, part of how God enters into our lives often, if not always, involves attention or something that doesn't quite fit our paradigm or fit our reality that leads to investigation and reflection. It's something that stops us in our tracks. It that slows us down for a moment where we can enter into and ask the deeper questions. It slows us down in a way. Attention, something maybe maybe for you is thinking my life is not going the way I thought it should, or maybe for you it, it, it's more like my life doesn't make sense. I feel like I'm living for myself. I'm pursuing these things. I'm pursuing grace. I'm pursuing career. I'm pursuing guys. Or women, I'm pursuing these things and for a while they satisfied me, but now it doesn't fit. It doesn't taste anymore. It's not doing what it wants did. but there's always tension that leads to reflection. Now what's hard for us is I just got back from doing this conference last weekend where we were talking about how part of what's hard for us in that idea of are we the kind of people that do deep reflection? Because part of what this text is telling us is that God meets us in that deep reflection where we ask the hard questions. Where we wrestle with the deeper things, either about ourselves or about life or even about him. Who is he? What is he like? But part of, there's a, a guy that wrote this book. Uh, his name's Alan Noble. We're Twitter friends. So we're, I like to think we're real friends, but we're just Twitter. We're online friends, and you know what that means. But uh, he sent me a copy of his book, and I, at first it was called Disruptive Witness. And I was kind of thinking, well, I don't really, I'm not thinking about this particular theme but then I went and did this conference talking about engaging culture and, and working on a talk about how our culture, just technologically, just thinking about social media purely, is a distracted culture. Like if you're anything like me, when you wake up in the morning, you have a liturgy. Like when I wake up in the morning, first of all, my phone is by my bed because my phone is my alarm clock and because I go to sleep watching something. Last night I fell asleep. I've started Mad Men for the fourth time. <laughs> That's sad to say out loud. But I, you know, I'm proud of it because it's a great show. But I fall asleep with my phone there. It's my alarm clock. I wake up. The first thing I do isn't to acknowledge the gift of today. Like when I wake up in the morning, I don't think, God, thank you for another moment of breath in this world. Can I take a moment just to rejoice in the glory of being alive? Thank you for my beautiful wife who's already up and out of the bed way before I am. Thank you for my kids who I want to strangle in the morning because they're not getting around and they're a pain in my life. Thank you for these beautiful gifts. No, what I do is I immediately usually go to Twitter and then I go to Instagram and then I go to Facebook and then I check my email for some reason. I don't ever respond to my email, but I check it and then I go back to Twitter and then I go back to Instagram and then I go back and I'm not even doing it. Like most of the time I'm just scrolling mindlessly and part of what Alan Noble says is part of our distraction in 2019 He says it's really two things. One is we live in an increasingly secularized world where God doesn't compute. He doesn't fit, which is why it's like saying the blessing in public can be so awkward. Like it's a disruption into the way that our culture kind of thinks and moves and lives. But then also we're distracted. Even when we begin to ask the profound, deep questions, it's easy just to forget them as we scroll mindlessly through, if you're like me, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Here's what Alan Noble says you have in your handout. He said, Our pervasive culture of technological distraction dramatically exacerbates the effects, what he calls the buffered self, which in turn feeds the demand for technology of distraction. The modern person experiences a buffer between themselves and the world out there, including transcendent ideas and truths. The constant distraction of our culture shields us from the kind of deep, honest reflection needed to ask why we exist and what is true. Uh, That's why one of my my favorite ever Onion articles, it was just one of those short ones, and the idea was it says, man uh, forgets life-changing insight on his drive home from church. And It was just a picture of a guy driving in his car. And I related to it because I'm like, that happens to me all the time. I feel like I have this profound moment of insight and how quickly it goes as I just sort of mindlessly live a life of no reflection of no sort of wondering, praying through, engaging the deeper questions, even of my own life. I had a moment in counseling last week or two weeks ago, right before this conference, and I was processing with my counselor, and we were processing a moment that I've had with my dad this last month, and just processing my dad's story. A lot of you have shared a lot about that. He left home. If you don't know that story, he left home when I was 12. It's a big part of my life, big part of my wound. A lot of us have father wounds. And so I'm processing this moment, and she asked me a question that just made me, it, just, it just snuck. You know, sometimes someone will ask you a question, and it sneaks up in you in such a way where you just, you just, start, you just lose it. And she asked me one of those questions, and I was just losing it. And I was embarrassed, you know, it's embarrassing sometimes. Like, counseling's the place, that's why I'm very pro counseling. I mean, she was crying with me. I mean, she met my tears with tears, which was amazing. But I'm crying, I'm crying. And then I sort of tell her I'm going to I stop crying. And she's with me. She's asking questions. And she says, can I ask you a question about that moment that just happened? She said, why did you just pop out of your pain? You were in your pain and you were feeling it. And then it got too much. And it felt like you just popped out. And I think part of what, part of what God is doing, part of what God does in our lives is he brings tensions. He brings things that, that were meant to really wrestle with him about. And that's part of what knowing him means. This is how he introduces himself to Moses. It's a, it's a thing that, he can't, that doesn't compute, that invites Moses in. And can I say to you, if you're not a Christian, he's doing that. Like part of how, you know, when I see God's work in students, part of what happens usually is a lot, life begins to fall apart and then you start asking the questions. It can be a breakup. It can be a family divorce. It can be a death. Oftentimes God uses something painful, especially it's what C.S. Lewis called God's megaphone, to wake us up to the deeper realities of what it means to know him. But if you know him, part of, can I say, the work of God in your life is to continue, invite, to, continue to invite you into those deeper questions that are painful. Because the question I've been asking myself is, why do I pop out of my pain? Because I don't want to go there. And yet God is saying, but that's where I am. I'm in the deep, the deep. Stuff the deep questions, the the tensions that lead to reflection and investigation. So first, meeting God involves tension leading to reflection. Second, meeting God feels like approaching fire. It feels like meeting fire. Here's what I mean by that. Fire, when you think about it. On the one hand, fire has this beautiful ability to invite, draw us in. Like I, I still, as a general rule, believe if you want guys to open up, do a fire pit and just, you can stare into that fire and things just start coming out, right? Like at this moment happened for me a few years ago. I was with friends and we're like good friends, best friends even. But it's hard sometimes, even with best friends, to talk about the real stuff, to talk about the hard stuff. But we built a fire in my backyard. We're sitting around that thing. And I'm telling you, like, things just started coming out. I mean, I'm talking like deep, hard things around this fire. Fire can be on the one hand, very intimate. That's why one of my favorite things to do with my family is to get, use our fireplace when it gets just cold enough in Columbia, build a fire, and just sit by it and enjoy the intimacy and the warmth of it. And the one hand, fire is inviting. That's why God, throughout Scripture, one of the things he refers to himself as, as a consuming fire. And part of, that, part of what that means is it's the, 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 the intimacy of fire drawing you in, bringing you in, drawing you out. But on the other hand, fire is uncontrollable. Fire has incredible power that you can't contain, that I can't contain. Power to destroy, power to shape things, power to change things. Um, I think about, um, another way to say it is it's uncontrollable. And part of what meeting God, part of how you know you've met God is not just the warmth of intimacy. He's drawn you to himself. But part of how you know you've met the real and living God is you know you can't control him. You know you can't manipulate him. He is far beyond your ability to control or manipulate. I love the way that Anne Lamott, she, she, she likes to say that you know that you've made God in your image when, you, when God hates all the same people you do. Because that's one of the questions. How do you know you've, you've tried to control or manipulate God? Three things. One, just what I said. If God hates all the same people you do, you know you've made God in your own image. Two, if God hates others' sins more than he hates your sins. If you think God hates porn more than he hates pride. If you think he hates drunkenness more than he hates greed. If you think he he hates sleeping around more than he hates self-righteousness, you might have made God in your own image. If he hates other sins more than your own, the third thing, as I was thinking about it, is if God can't ever tell you no, if God can't ever disappoint you, if God can't ever hear your prayers in an intimate way and say, no, we're not doing that then you might have a God made in your own image. I think about thinking about that idea of how fire is uncontrollable. Uh, One of my mentors, John Stone, has this incredible story that I'm going to not do justice the way he would tell the story. But I love the story. He's driving home. So he was a area coordinator, which meant he was on the road a ton. And one night he was driving home back to Knoxville, Tennessee. And as he's driving, he sees this, I mean, just a house engulfed in flames. And it's in the middle of nowhere. And so he thinks, okay, I'm probably, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. So he thinks I probably should go and just see if I can help, like see if I can need to bring people out of his house, see what's up. So he drives up, and a guy, but thankfully the family is safe. They're out of the house, and the dad is just, he's distraught. I mean, they're losing the family. They're losing everything. They're losing their house engulfed in flames. But the dad, in a moment of delusion, because the fire truck's coming, but it's not there yet. The, the dad, in a moment of just delusion and just freaking out, he goes over and he gets a water hose and he takes the water hose up to the house and he starts going, psh, psh. and, and Stunt says he's like, I'm, I'm not laughing because this is a serious thing, but he was like, that hose was going to do nothing, Right. The fire truck had to come and bring the big, the big stuff. Why? Because fire is uncontrollable. You can't hope to contain it. And part of what God is saying is, well, I'm drawing you into a relationship with me, but know that my power in your life is going to shape you. It's going to change you. The good news for us is it's going to shape and change us to be more like Jesus. But it is a power that is uncontrollable that we submit ourselves to. Meeting God is like approaching fire. But third, meeting God also... Exposes, and I think this is the strange one because I think we have ideas about what meeting God is like, and it's not this—that meeting God exposes our insecurities and our weaknesses. Like this is—I know that I like—it's an easy target to pick on Christian movies, and I've told myself and I've told Daniel and Caroline I'm repenting of that. I'm really trying hard because it, it is easy for me to make fun of, but I also realize that's just sort of a jerk thing to do. But can I just say one of my one of my frustrations with a lot of. Um, Christian films, is that it, it makes meeting God seem too easy. It makes meeting God seem like you meet God and then your life is okay. You meet God and then you win the game, the game and you get a nice new truck and you're on the daddy team. Like, that you basically, that, that anytime you, that when God gets involved in your life, he makes it easier. And can I say that's not how this text goes. Moses meets God and as soon as he does... He's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. The first thing he notices, he's like Peter in the boat with Jesus. The first thing you notice when you come up against the living God is how flawed and weak and sinful and insecure we are. So the way Isaiah says it is, woe, woe, to me, woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips. The way, to, the way Peter says it is, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. And the way Moses does it, he actually says, seven, he gives God seven reasons. Seven reasons in chapter 3, 4, and 5, and 6. Seven reasons why he's not God's man. Here they are real quickly. First, he says, what we call lack of fitness. He says to God, who am I that I should go in chapter 3? Second, he's lack of words. What, what am I going to say, he says. What shall I say to them in chapter 3? Third is lack of authority. He basically says, they will not believe me. Who am I that they would believe me, he says in chapter 4. Fourth, lack of power of speech. Moses was deeply insecure about his ability to speak, to be eloquent. He says in, verse, in the chapter 4, I am not eloquent. Lack of adaptability. He says again in verse 4, "Send by whom thou will sin. I'm not sure I can adapt and do this thing that you're asking. Six is lack of success. He says in chapter 5, after he first approaches them, neither have you delivered your people. And he's saying this thing's not going well. And then the seventh thing he says is what we could just call lack of acceptance. He says in chapter 6, the children of Israel have not listened to me. Lack of fitness, lack of words, lack of authority, lack of power of speech, lack of adaptability, lack of success, and lack of acceptance. And kind of just say, maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel like, how could God possibly use me in our UF? Maybe you feel like, how could God possibly use me on this campus? How could He possibly use me for His kingdom? How could He possibly use me in ministry? And then think about the laundry list that you have. Maybe, maybe here's just some things I was thinking about. Maybe you think the Lord can't use you because you're too introverted, or you're too depressed, or you're too anxious, or you're too much. Maybe you feel like you've made too many mistakes. Maybe you feel like you're not good enough with people, or you're a train wreck at small talk. I like to say I don't make small talk. I burn it in the oven because I'm so bad at it. That you're not deep enough That you're not smart enough. That you're not theological enough. That you're not cool enough. That you're not, you fill in the blank, whatever it is, that you're not enough, likable enough. And I think this is a beautiful text because God says to Moses, Moses, you've missed the point. It's not about you. And it's not about your gifts. And it's not about your abilities. And it's not about your power. It's about me. In fact, we read in chapter 3, he says, I am delivering My people. And I am you are the instrument. You are the person I am choosing to work in and through. And the thing that we need to wrestle with is, you know, when Peter is writing first Peter, he says we are a a priesthood of saints. Which means if you belong to Jesus, you are called to ministry. It doesn't mean you're called to big end ministry, but it does mean you're called to be ministry-minded. You're called to be, in a sense, following like Moses, this mission of rescuing people from slavery, of, of testifying to why who Jesus is and what Jesus promises in his coming and by his cross and resurrection. I've always loved the way Martin Luther said it. He put it really well. You've probably heard it before. He said, we're simply beggars telling other beggars where we can find bread. That's all we're doing, and that's all Moses is doing here. I like the way one commentator says it. It's not your handout, we'll listen to He says this exchange between Moses and Yahweh gets at the heart of Moses' repeated attempts to extricate himself from God's call. Moses seems to resist God's call because he assumes that he is playing the central role in the deliverance of the Israelites whom God calls my my people. What Moses does not yet understand is that God cares more about Israel's deliverance than he does. And God is fully capable of directing the means to bring this about. It is God who will bring his people out of Egypt. He will display his might precisely by working through weak and ordinary means. Moses has not yet learned that salvation is of the Lord. And thinking about that idea, I, this conference I did uh, two weekends ago, one of the thing, moments that struck me was I was doing it on Saturday morning. I was going to talk on self-care and the idea of if you're in it was especially geared for people in ministry. How do we do self-care? How do we live healthy lives? And I was struck by, there was one uh, Young Life worker who came up afterward, and she said, I just want to thank you so much because I thought you were really honest about uh, you struggling with your fitness for ministry. She just said that was really refreshing. And it caught me off guard because I was like, of course I don't feel fit for ministry. Uh, uh, Like, of course I don't feel fit. I don't feel worthy. And part of what God is doing in this text is saying he doesn't, here's the best way we can say it. It's not unique to me. That God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God does not call. And if, by the way, if you think you are fit, let's have a conversation. Let's talk, let's work through some stuff. Because one of the signs you have met the living God and are being brought into this ministry that we share is that you don't feel fit. You don't feel called. You can relate to Moses here and And this is where we have to see that this is where we turn to Jesus, because here's what this text is saying is Jesus. If we think about it, if we run this text through what we know about Jesus, we can say it like this. Jesus is really the true. He's the true and better burning bush. Think about what we celebrate at Christmas. Work with me for a second here. What we celebrate at Christmas is we celebrate this idea of a child, a baby being the great I am. In fact, when Jesus takes that name to himself in John 8, he pisses all kinds of people off. Why? Because there is incredible paradox in a man who laughs and eats and weeps and sleeps being the great I am. The one who depends on no one and nothing. who is pure power and holiness. And this burning bush of who is Jesus. And then we could also say this burning bush of what Jesus's mission was dying on a cross. God crucified out of love for sinners, that is a burning bush if there ever was one. A holy God, not judging and sending sinners to hell, but drawing near and dying the death that you and I deserve to die and living the life that you and I could never live. This is a burning bush, that, the cross drawing us in. What kind of a God would love us like this? And the point is that we're, what, what God is doing with Moses is he's saying, Moses, you're looking at yourself. I want you to keep your eyes on me. Moses, you you are looking at yourself, and yes, of course, you are full of weakness and sin and insecurity. And can I just invite you to keep your eyes on me and who I am and what I can do and what I can promise. I love the way that Robert Murray McShane said it. He said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks to Christ because you are not enough. I love Brene Brown. (laughs) It feels so wrong to critique her, but we are not enough, but Christ is. And you and Christ are enough. And Christ in you is enough. But the whole thing is to move from looking at ourselves to fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the last thing I want to see. Is meeting God always ends in mission. Meeting God always ends in mission. This is a simple point, I'll close with this. Here's the point I want to make. I think you and I think about experiencing God as ending in inspiration. Like if we're being honest, you're here tonight. I guess I'm I guess I'm here tonight too in a way. Or I just want to feel good. Like, I want to preach this sermon and y'all be like, thank you. That was incredible. And I'm like, ah, I feel better about myself. And if you're being honest, you're probably here tonight, right? Like, you want to hear some word that maybe just makes you feel better, better about yourself, better about life, better about, I don't know, better than you, better than the way you walked into this room. And often, what happens, well, I mean, if you're an RUF, you, you kind of know this, is often you don't leave this room feeling better. You might feel sadder or a little more depressed or just deal, hopefully wrestling with yourself. I hope that. That's what I pray for because then you can, you're ready to meet Jesus. Um, but I think the way I was thinking about it is God, Moses didn't leave this burning bush thinking, man, that was amazing. Now it's time for me to go do me. I'm going to do me some Moses, Moses time. Like, he left this bush with this mission, with the mission of Yahweh, which is why he's so scared and he should be and we should be. And yet Yahweh gave him the courage he needed. And in that sense, I know we need inspiration. We need inspiration for the mission. But what I want you to see is I think sometimes we lose sight of the mission. And we just want the inspiration. And I think this is really, this is a question I think we should wrestle with. I should wrestle with. You should wrestle with. Is that we lost sight of The mission. There's a way of doing Christianity where it really is about you. And it really is about me. Or are we marveling in the grace of Jesus, being changed by the grace of Jesus, so that we can go love the people that Jesus loves, so that we can go be part of the delivery and the rescue that God intends in their lives, and we just get to be a part of it. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the way that you meet us. Would you continue to meet us in these ways and more? Help us to wrestle with the deep questions. Lord, I pray that even tonight and this week, you would give us moments in the busyness of studying and hanging out, all the good things that we get to do just to reflect with you and the things you want to do in our lives and the questions you're asking. I pray too, Lord, that we would never be those who try to manipulate you, but that we would bow to your holiness and want to be more conformed and be like Jesus Lord, I pray that you would be the one who is reminding us that belong, that we are not enough, but that because we belong to you, you are enough, and you have made us enough in Christ. And will we trust you with our weaknesses and our insecurities. And Lord, I pray, too, that you would invite us and lead us and give us courage to follow you into your mission on our campus and in this world, the healing of our campus and the healing of this world. That's the mission. And we pray that you would help us and, and do all these things in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the Doxology with me. I'll kick us off. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Okay. I hope to see you next week.